I thoroughly enjoyed that refre- reflection song. Uh, it's a song by Sufjan Stevens called The Transfiguration. And one of the lyrics is, lost in a cloud, a voice. And our hope this morning as we reflect on the transfiguration is to get lost in this cloud because this is a defining moment for a disciple of Christ. And, and for centuries since, people have reflected upon this mountaintop experience where the disciples are lost in a, in a cloud and they hear the voice of God. Mark's aim in his gospel so far has been to help us understand who is Jesus. He's driving us to consider the question, but last week we hit the turning point where you answer that question by seeing what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to walk the way. And last week, it was a turning point because the disciples finally start to get it. Peter declares, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. And then Jesus tells them plainly, you're right. And here's what I came to do. I came to be rejected. I came to suffer. I came to die and rise. And Peter, he rebukes him because this defies his expectations of what the Messiah was supposed to be. And we see that even though Peter got the answer right, he's saying the right words, he was still trying to define the Son of God, the Messiah, on his own terms. And while he's beginning to see his sight, it remains partial, incomplete. He's only partially healed. He's not seeing clearly yet because he isn't listening to Jesus. Or as Jesus put it, he has his things, his mind set on the things of man, not on the things of God. Because Jesus, he came to walk the way. And this becomes the major theme of Mark's gospel, and it's in our, in our passage today. Jesus, it came for the way of the cross. And the cross, it's been our icon, it's been our logo or our brand, so to speak, for two millennia for good reason. Jesus, he came to be crucified. This was no accident. This is why he came to the earth. But we have to wrestle with this reality because we don't naturally get it. We don't naturally understand why on earth would God send his son into the world for such a reality as this. But time and time and time again, Jesus works with his followers, with his disciples, to see this is the purpose he came for, to walk the way, to be crucified. And so I want you to know, if you're a guest, uh, Christians were not obsessed with gore and suffering and death on the cross just for the sake of the gore and suffering and death. We continue to speak of Jesus of Nazareth being crucified because his cross reveals who he truly is. If you want to know the man, Jesus Christ, you have to look to him crucified. Last week in our passage, Christ ends with saying these words, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God and it coming in power. And while he has his death and resurrection primarily in mind when he says that, those words are also a segue into our passage today where Jesus ascends a mountain and is transfigured and reveals his glory to the disciples. They are seeing the kingdom of God. Specifically, they're seeing the glory of the king. So here's the idea we're going to explore this morning. We can't see who Jesus is until we listen to what he says. It's really simple. We can't see who Jesus is until we listen to who he claims to be. So open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 1. 
And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there's some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come in power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. I grew up in Victoria, right on the edge of Mount Douglas. And if you're not familiar uh, with Victoria, Mount Doug is really an over-glorified hill. Uh, no more noticeable than like a small wrinkle on a freshly ironed shirt. But growing up, this was my place of uh, solace, my fortress of uh, solitude, you might say. And uh, I would ascend the mountain. I'd, you know, traverse the ferns and the trees. And no matter who I was with or how I got to the top, uh, something always happened. I could look down from the top of the mountain. I could see my house, the streets I'd walk. I could see my school. I could see where I moved every single day, but I saw it from a different perspective. It was small. It was comprehensible. You see, that Mount Doug to me growing up, and I, I went up almost daily, uh, it was a thin place. The ordinary always became less ordinary and more extraordinary up there. When we see a mountain in the scriptures, we're meant to pay attention to this change of landscape. Mountains, they're thin places. The ordinary does become less ordinary, and it's infused with God's presence. Heaven intersects with earth, and earth intersects with heaven, neither one overpowering the other. They exist together, and God's presence becomes more palpable and more evident, and reality becomes more real. So in verse 1, Jesus says, there's some standing here. They're not going to taste death until they see the kingdom of God coming in power. And then we read in verse 2, six days later, he takes Peter, James, and John and leads them up a high mountain. Jesus, he's bringing three of his disciples, his inner three, his tightest knit circle of followers up a mountain. He's leading them into a thin place. And when they arrive, Mark writes in verse 2 or 3, he was transfigured before them. He was transfigured before them. What does that mean? It means to change in a visible way. Often on Sunday, you know what it is to be transfigured. You go to Chipotle, you eat a burrito, and you have a burrito baby. You've been transfigured. You've been altered in a visible way. But in the case of Christ... He's altered in a visible way, but it's a revealing. It's a revealing. Yes, Jesus, his physical appearance changes, but it's more like an undressing, an unveiling of who he is beneath the skin. And Jesus, he'd promised that his disciples would see the kingdom in glory, and now they're getting a glimpse of it. They're getting a glimpse of his glory as the king of the universe. You know, where the glory of an earthly king is impressive, uh, you know, a good head-to-body ratio decked out in fine fabrics and jewels and gold and all the human splendor we can offer, tossing out cheeseburgers to everyone. Uh, Jesus, he has a glory that transcends this earth. His clothes became radiant, white, that no bleach, no bleach could produce this whiteness. It's unfathomable for our minds. We can't actually depict it. 
There's nothing ordinary or common going on here. And it defies what we consider normal or reasonable, which can make us ask, hey, hold up. Did this even happen? And look, I'm not going to ask you to suspend your sense of reality. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to ask you to reconsider your sense of reality altogether. Because most of us assume in this room that how things are done in present are de facto better than the way things were done in the past. This isn't always the case. I don't know if you know much about windmills. I didn't know much about windmills until I met my friend John. And John's an architect who is passionate about helping deal with the HIV crisis in Africa, specifically in Malawi. And so he traveled down there and was visiting hospitals and realized you can't even touch on this crisis if you can't provide consistent food and water. And so he started dealing with the farmers and he realized, I'm going to botch the technical terms, but the water real close to the, the surface, right? Like a topsoils thing, like you can get to the water really easy, but it's hard to distribute the water. And so John realized they need windmills, and they, they could actually have agriculture year-round that isn't affected by drought. And so John moves back to Orlando and uh, decides, you know what, I'm going to build a windmill in my backyard, and I'll do it all out of wood and see how this goes. And so he built, like, that size windmill in his backyard. Neighbors loved him. And it worked. It brought up water, but he realized this is too sophisticated. People of Malawi do not have this quality of wood. They won't be able to get all the, the parts that they need to make this function. And so instead of going forward, John went backward. And he found a design from the second century, an Arabic design. And he adapted it so it could be built out of common materials found even in abject poverty. And this invention has been remarkably successful, if you're going to call it an invention. It's just an old windmill. Since designing this, over 40 villages have been transformed. He has given away the blueprints for free. The University of Malawi has taken it on board, and it is transforming agriculture so much so that chiefs come to neighboring villages that they were once rivals with and saying, please share this technology with me. And John has so instilled an ethos of giving away that is revolutionizing Malawi and hopefully more of Africa to come. Now, here's the thing. There is nothing wrong with sophisticated windmills. They're great. And if you can build them, awesome. But if the sophistication makes them inaccessible to the people who need them most and would make them depend on outsiders even more, they're utterly useless. Well, what does windmills have to do with our passage? Since the scientific revolution, our understanding of the world and our place in the world has become far more sophisticated. And that's a good thing. It is good that we're learning more about the world and the universe. Science is good. Hear me on that. But we shouldn't let our sophistication blind us to realities that have been a part of the human existence since history has been written. Realities that continue to happen today, such as miracles. They may sound simplistic. They may seem, you know, uninformed or even you know, archaic expressions of lesser minds. But those who have testified to experience uh, miracles in the past or even in the world today know one thing. They have encountered something unordinary and something that has transformed them. 
And so the accounts of miracles in Scripture, be it the transfiguration or the healing of bodies, they're not due to ignorant minds that are easily manipulated. It's testimony, and it needs to be heard on its own terms, not rewritten into our Western minds and perspectives. So, Jesus, he removes the thin veil that stands between seeing heaven intersecting with earth in him. And Mark tells us his clothes became radiant white, real white. Now, is that it? Did Jesus get real clean and shiny? Like This seems a little underwhelming, especially compared to Luke's account where he says his face was transfigured and light was essentially beaming out of him. Why is Mark so caught up in the clothes? Because clothing matters. We know this. I recently bought an Illuminati t-shirt. And when I wear it, it signifies something. I'm a member of a secret global organization that controls the world. Not really, maybe, Illuminati. Uh, or if you see a woman in a long white dress with a train and a veil, her clothing signifies something, marriage. And traditionally, the color of the dress signifies something. If it's white, it meant purity and virginity. If it's black, she's a witch and you'd burn her. Uh, clothing matters. Now, Mark, he only mentions clothing when it's significant. You know, he doesn't go describing everybody's wardrobe in the gospel. Like in chapter 5, when Jairus approaches Jesus, Mark doesn't say Jairus fell at Jesus' feet and he's wearing sandals designed by John Fluvog and a flowing burnt marine robe uh, by Coco Chanel and perfect red tunic by Vera Wang. No, this is not how he describes everyone in the gospel because it's not what they looked like. And if, it's, if even they did look this way, it's irrelevant. But there are a few times when Mark does describe clothing. Mark, he describes John the Baptist's clothing. He was clothed in camel's hair and a leather belt. Well, why? It signifies that John is working in the power of the spirit of Elijah. When Jesus is arrested, I can't wait to preach on this passage, Mark describes a young man wearing a linen cloth who flees naked to escape. And it demonstrates that people would rather bear public humiliation and shame than be identified with Jesus in his arrest. When Jesus is crucified, Mark mentions that the guards cast lots to divide his clothing. Well, why? To show that the crucifixion was no accident, but the fulfilling of Scripture. Lastly, at the empty tomb, Mark describes an angel dressed in white robes. That's it. These are all the times Mark talks about clothing and our passage now. We're supposed to pay attention because it carries deep significance. Christ's clothes become radiant, white, whiter than any bleach. What does it signify? Throughout Scripture, white is the color of God. It's an unveiling of Christ's heavenly glory. Jesus, he lifts the veil and the disciples see pure radiance, pure otherness. They see his divinity. They see his holiness, his purity. In other words, at his core, Christ is clothed in God. But just as the garments of a wedding signify something, the surrounding environment means something too. If someone wore a wedding dress every day, you know, to coffee, it'd be weird. It's out of context. There's an appropriate environment for the wedding dress. In the same way, uh, a guest list goes with the context of a, a wedding dress. You have a location and a guest list. 
No, Jesus, his unveiling takes place on top of a mountain. In Scripture, this is the appropriate place for the event. Well, what about his guest list? It's significant too. Look at verse 4. There appeared to him Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Holy Moses, this is remarkable. I mean, as far as Jewish celebrities go, this is the A-list. And I don't know how the disciples knew it was Moses and Elijah. You don't know, but like probably introductions or my theory is name tags, heavenly name tags. Everyone's got to wear a name tag in heaven. How are you going to know who everyone is? Golden heavenly name tags. But I digress. The presence of Moses and Elijah, it says so much. And we'll get to the significance of their stories in a bit. But for now, here they are with Jesus, talking to Jesus, Jesus who stands in the place of God, speaking to the greatest prophets of Israel's history. And it's easy to overlook this fact, but it's important. He's not in conversation with the dead. This isn't necromancy. He's in conversation with the living. Moses and Elijah, they're not in their graves. They're alive. Life continues after death, and they're just waiting for the final resurrection at the end of time. But what are they talking to Jesus about? Mark doesn't tell us. Luke does. Luke chapter 9, verse 31. They were speaking of his departure. They stand in glory in a thin place. Moses, Jesus, Elijah, Heaven is intersecting with earth, and they're discussing his departure. They're discussing the way. They're discussing the cross. At the heart of God's glory is the cross. You see, all that God set out to do through Moses and Elijah was to pave the way for Jesus' departure. At the end of each of their ministries, they appointed a successor, Moses, Joshua, Elijah, Elisha. But here we see Jesus as their ultimate successor. And they're discussing his death. Which means if you want to see the glory of God, if you want to see the glory of Jesus, if you want to know who he really is, you have to look to the cross. Because Jesus, he didn't come to dazzle. He came to save and redeem. And all of God's redemptive work, down from Moses to Elijah, was to set up the way for Jesus. But let's not forget about three other people. Peter, James, and John. They're witnessing all of this. The glory. They're listening in on this conversation about his departure. And look at verses 5 and 6. Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Now try to imagine this if you can. You're on top of a mountain. You've been learning with a great composer. You've been learning from him about the glories of music. And suddenly, Mozart and Beethoven appear and they're standing with you. Like, whoa, hey guys. And if you want a more rock and roll experience, I don't know, uh, Jimi Hendrix and Kurt Cobain. Whoever it is, you know, terrible or good, uh, here you are standing with two of the greats. But rather than say, hey, what are you guys up to? Are you composing something? Your response is, hey, we should hang out and camp. You know, we're on the West Coast. We're on a mountain. Camping's the obvious solution to this interesting paradox. Uh, Peter would obviously get on just fine in Vancouver. 
Now, to be fair, Mark gives us insight into what's going on with Peter and the other disciples. They were afraid. And rightly so. This sort of experience makes reality unravel at the seams. You don't have a frame of reference to understand the dead rising in front of you and them discussing death, and then you're just hanging out witnessing it. And whenever God appears in tangible ways in Scripture, the default response is face on the ground fear. Not holy reverence, holy fear. So Peter, he suggests building some tents. And I'm sure it seemed perfectly reasonable at the time, even though they didn't suggest tents for themselves. I don't know, maybe they're going to bunk up with each other, take turns. But uh, it shows Peter, James, and John's, John's, John, they're still not getting it. They're missing what's being composed. They see, but they don't perceive which has been an ongoing issue in the Gospel of Mark. And suddenly, a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. Since their sense of sight is failing, God speaks. He overshadows them with a cloud, and this is important, and it's powerful. When God took Moses and the people of Israel out of Egypt and into the wilderness to reveal his word and his law, what did he say? Exodus 19, 9, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that people may hear when I speak to you, and may also believe you forever. God confirms his presence at the transfiguration. God speaks. God speaks with the intent that those who hear him might believe forever. And what does God say on this mountain? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. The implication being, believe in Jesus forever. It's such a simple and powerful message. And you'll notice it's almost the exact same as Jesus' baptism. There God said, you're my beloved son. With you I'm well pleased. And now God speaks to Peter, James, and John. He says, this is my beloved son. Listen to what he has to say. And they look around and Moses and Elijah, they're gone. They took a pass on the camping. And Mark writes, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus alone. The disciples, they're instructed to listen to Jesus, to hear him and see him only. But take note of this, the command to hear him and listen to him comes before they see him alone. The, the command to listen to him happens before they see him alone. Why should the disciples listen to Jesus? Why? Jesus stands above Moses and Elijah who represent the law and the prophets. Moses, he ascended Mount Sinai and received the law. And when he came down the mountain, his face was shining from being in the presence of God, and he had to wear a veil for the sake of the people. But Jesus, he ascends the mountain, not to receive the law, but to fulfill it. And there he doesn't veil himself, but unveils himself, revealing the glory of God. Elijah, he ascended Mount Horeb 
running away to save his life. And there on the mountain, he spoke with God about paving the way for the Messiah. But Jesus, he ascends the mountain, not to pave the way, but to walk in the way that was paved for him. And he's not trying to save his life, but he's preparing to lose it. And so while the disciples, they're accustomed to listening to Moses or Elijah, God is clear. They're to listen to Jesus from here on out and Jesus alone because he's his beloved son. That was never said of Moses or Elijah or anyone else. And for this reason and this reason alone, they're to listen to Jesus and fix their eyes upon him. But again, why the emphasis on listening over sight? Because just six days ago, the disciples, they began to see Jesus, but only partially. They're like the blind man who was only partially healed at first. Jesus, he's just looking like a walking tree. And when Jesus plainly told them that he came to be rejected and suffer and die and rise, they couldn't accept it. They couldn't listen to what he had to say. But they need to listen to him. Because on this side of eternity, we don't get to remain on thin place mountaintop experiences for all of our lives. You know, we can't go from one spiritual experience to another. These moments, they are irregular. And for some of us, they don't happen at all. Why is that? Don't miss what's happening in the transfiguration. Not even the transfiguration has the power to heal the disciples' blindness and deafness. They see partially. They still see faintly, even after this incredible experience. You see, they need to hear before they see. They're still in the dark even after this experience. But now they know they need to listen up. They need to listen to what Jesus says about himself. They need to let him form the questions they ask. You see, the only miracle that will ever restore sight and healing for spiritual blindness and deafness is the death and resurrection of Jesus. That is the only mountaintop experience you need to be healed. And the transfiguration, it's preserved in Scripture for us, not so that we would go and pursue ecstatic spiritual experiences, but so that we could hear its message. Listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus and let him lead you into his departure. Let him lead you to his cross. But like the disciples, we can miss the message and leave asking questions, good questions, but not the fundamental questions. Look at verses 9 through 13. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it's written of him. They don't get the rising from the dead business. You know, in the Jewish worldview back then, they expected the resurrection to be for everyone, resurrection to life and resurrection to judgment at the end of time. It wasn't going to have a sneak peek within history. 
beyond their expectations. And uh, they're talking and they say, hey, isn't Elijah supposed to come before all this takes place? And get, you know, we just saw him on the mountain. What's happening? Are we preparing for the end of the world? And Jesus answers their question, but only briefly. Elijah has come, but it's not Elijah reincarnate or Elijah coming down from heaven. The spirit of Elijah that went from Elijah to Elisha now rests on John the Baptist. And they did whatever they pleased to John. He was preparing the way for me. More importantly, Jesus, in a very rabbinic fashion, responds to their question with a question. Verse 12, how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? In other words, you're asking a good question, but it's not the question you need to be asking. Jesus pushes them back to his departure. He pushes them back to the way, his impending death on the cross. Everything they experienced was to help them understand that, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. Yes, he's the beloved son of God, but he's also the suffering servant of God, described in Isaiah 53. He came to suffer and die and rise to deal with the issue of sin. And they will not see who he truly is until they listen to what he is truly saying. And almost cryptically, the passage ends in silence. Will they listen? Will we listen? There's plenty of good questions you can ask Jesus. Plenty of good questions you can ask about the Christian faith. What about Elijah was theirs? And we have ours. Where is God? Is there a God? Is the Bible inspired? Was Jesus a historical person? These are great questions. But will we listen to Jesus and let him tell us what questions we should start with? Will we start asking not just who is Jesus, but is Jesus the Son of God? And will we also ask, what does his death and resurrection mean for me? And if we listen to Jesus, and if we let him shape the questions we ask about him, will we listen to him alone for the answers? There's a lot of places we can look for these answers. And it's not bad to do that, to read scholars and arguments and the like. You should be doing that. You should engage literature and people's opinions. But at the end of the day, God's instruction is this. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And Jesus, through his spirit, inspired his apostles and their colleagues to write it down. Everything you need to know about Jesus is right here. Inspired, infallible from his lips. The question is, will you go to scripture to listen to him there? If you don't have a Bible, if you're given a Bible on your way in, take it home. It's yours. Duct tape the cover because it'll wear out pretty quick. But it's your Bible. Go to the Gospels. Read them for yourselves. Look at the words Jesus says. Listen to him. Will we enter that space like the disciples where we see Jesus alone? Where we see his glory shining radiantly and brightly but also on the cross? Will we see the glory and power of forgiveness and redemption? Will we listen to Jesus when he says, this must happen? 
Will we listen and accept that it must happen for each of us? Now, this is the curious tension. We can't truly see who Jesus is. We can't comprehend his death on the cross until we listen to what he has to say. But why do we resist listening to him alone? Because I can see it in the room right now. It's palpable. We're all kind of tensing up. Like, listen to to him alone? This isn't our custom. Like Peter, James, and John, we're terrified. Because we want to listen to as many voices as possible and stick with the ones that best suit us. We want to pick and choose. We want to discern for ourselves what sounds most reasonable and good and acceptable. And if it's just one person we're listening to, aren't we running the risk of becoming narrow-minded or misinformed or, God forbid, boring? How could we trust one voice to shape and guide us in a way that's healthy and life-giving. And this bring us, brings us closer to the issue. Now, on the one hand, you already do listen to one voice. It's your own. You trust yourself more than anyone. So you're already accustomed to this practice. Scripture is challenging us to question our own trustworthiness of guiding and shepherding ourselves. But we also have to ask, how could someone else other than myself be so trustworthy of my loyalty and my complete allegiance. Here's why. Jesus is God's beloved son. God loves the world and loves you so much. Jesus loves the world and loves you so much that he left eternal glory with his father and became a person and walked the way that none of us could walk and ascended a mountain that no person could ascend, the Mount of Calvary. And there he demonstrated his love for us by being crucified to forgive us. We can trust that sort of love. We can listen to that sort of voice because he doesn't use his authority to overpower us, but to serve us. His voice isn't self-serving, but sacrificial. He's not manipulative, but unfathomably generous. He doesn't withhold mercy, but offers forgiveness freely and abundantly. God himself spoke to the disciples on that mount, and he said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Which means this. If you listen to the voice of Jesus, you're listening to the voice of God. And it's his voice and his voice alone that can bring you into the forgiveness of sins, that can promise you eternal life, and that will bring you into the love of God. So repent, which means realign your thinking. Confess your sins and believe in the gospel. 